0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Strategic Dialogues, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Global Dialogue that aims to take a deep dive into pertinent issues in international relations, including geopolitical dynamics and governance, foreign policy analysis, and international diplomacy, all while centering African perspectives and agency. My name is Faith Maber, senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue, and my co host is Ms. Sanusha Naidu, who's a senior research fellow at the IGD. We are delighted to have Mr. Jude Moore as our expert guest on this episode, in which we will have a very timely conversation about China Africa relations from a range of perspectives. Uh, Jude Moore is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as Liberia's Minister of Public Works with oversight over the construction and maintenance of public infrastructure from December 2014 to January 2018. At CGD, Moore's research focus is around financing infrastructure in Africa and the changing landscape of development finance on the continent. His research tracks the channels of private sources of finance, the rise of China and its expanding role in Africa, and Africa's response to these changes. Thank you for joining us today, Jude, as we um, plan to have a very nuanced and a very balanced engagement on China-Africa relations. It's a double win, especially for us, to have you on, especially because you bring in both a policy analyst and a practitioner perspective, of course, given your uh, previous portfolio in government.
1: All right. Uh, thank you, Faith and Sanusha. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. And um, Hopefully, next time, I'll actually be in an SA, and we can do it again. Yes,
0: we will very, like, very much like to do it and, and actually have that face-to-face interaction. Um, I think as a starting point, I want to jump right in on, on the very timely commentary that you published recently, and I'm referring here to the one titled, A New Cold War Is Coming?, Africa should not pick sides. And in this piece, you offered a prudent word to African countries and their agents in the international arena. Inevitably, as you argue, Africa will find itself caught up in the geopolitical competition, the US-China rivalry, the tech wars, and the recriminations around international trade that have pointed to a very uh, politically charged strategic context. But in the throes of it all, Africa should avoid falling prey to uh, a a sort of instrumentalized rhetoric and maneuvers. So I think start by uh, talking to us and just giving us your thoughts about the nuances on what you call the shared values narrative.
1: So again, uh, thanks again uh, for for, for having me. I think uh, one of the things I will point to is that last year, um, about... 20 African countries, 17 or 20 African countries, were signatories to a document supporting Chinese policy in Xinjiang, where it has the issue with the Uyghurs. Now, obviously, I, I column is skeptical that African countries on their own simply decided to sign a document supporting the Chinese. They were lobbied for that. And then most recently, the new national security law in Hong Kong uh, I think about 21 of the countries that supported the new Chinese security law in, in uh, Hong Kong were African countries. Once again, we, we're, so we're seeing African countries being drawn in. And again, I do not believe these African countries just unilaterally decided they were going to sign a document to support uh, national security law in, 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 in China. On the other hand, I mean, beginning with uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and then with um, Tillerson uh, continuing with uh, um, um, Pompeo. There's always this talk that Africa should be skeptical of Chinese presence and China's presence. But under Pompeo, is going even further. They're encouraging African countries and other allies not to use Huawei equipment, not to use Chinese um Hardware, uh, ICT hardware in our systems, in terms of building that, and to be skeptical of China's presence and 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 our engagement with China, that China is actually nefariously trying to ensnare Af- its African partners into this unequal relationship and then take advantage of us. And so, increasingly, for now, when when the African countries sign on to those two letters supporting the Chinese position in those issues there was no cost attached to it, where the Western countries on the other side of that agreement did not cut off aid, did not do anything. But increasingly, as it becomes more, the recriminations heighten. I believe those actions on the part of African governments, those actions are going to themselves, carry costs. And so how does an African country respond in this environment? The final thing I would say on this is that this isn't, it didn't just start today. I think it's now, um, it's gone up higher under the Trump administration. But in, 20, in July, January of 2018, the national defense policy of the United States designated China as a peer competitor. At that point, it means, you know, that any gain for China is perceived as a loss for the United States. Now, Africa has interests that are completely separate. From anything China wants or anything the United States wants, It is important for us to chart a course that remains true to what is best for Africa and its citizens, and not what lines up with either the Chinese or the European side of this conflict. And so it was in this context that I was trying to present sort of like a, a policy recommendation to my former colleagues, people who are in the position I used to be, whether as a member of the cabinet or as an advisor to the president in terms of how we conduct ourselves in this in this space.
2: Uh, thank you, uh, Gure. This has been really important. I think you've raised a significant point around African agency in the discussion, and of course, not <laughs> only with with um, in the discussion, but I think also in terms of how African countries frame their engagement with China, not to become part of. Um, a, a a a dual war that's happening, or a new dig, a new cold war that's digit that's based on digital technology and who controls data and uh, technology and so forth. And I think that in itself raises questions um, in respect of the idea that you know when we're looking at uh, China's engagement in Africa, how does that then? Align with development finance, particularly infrastructure development support for Africa's uh, uh, infrastructural needs, and you know the range that links to the Belt Road Initiative, and and the considerations that we should Mm -hmm. be thinking about in terms of not just the Belt Road. And I think I'm I may I may even jump forward and say in FOCAC, how to, you know, next year will be the next mm-hmm. FOCAC summit. And how does this agency, in terms of not becoming part of what the what China wants from you or what the U.S. wants from you, but rather what you want for yourself, just around some of those mm-hmm. expectations in terms of uh, looking at China's role in Africa, but also the evolving questions around the Belt Road Initiative and the perceptions and experiences that we see from the African side, uh, the Chinese side, and then, of course, how, how Washington may be also inserting itself in that discussion.
1: Yeah, I, you know, um, um, thank you, Sanusha. I, I think a part of the thing here is that we, how do we find, how did we find ourselves in this uh, situation, right? I mean, mm. in, in one of the pieces I said that Europe has had a substantive presence on the continent for centuries, Right this engagement especially this full-throated engagement we're seeing from China actually began in 2000 before that the most substantive presence of the Chinese on the continent would be in the late 1960s and early 70s when they financed Zara, right yeah. but this presence it started in 2000 when the Chinese did their first going out policy and why was Africa such an easy place for China to work one is because the west perceived the continent through lenses of of development aid and humanitarian assistance. Africa wasn't seen as a place to do business. Africa was seen as a place, you know, a monolithic unit that was ravaged by wars and disease. It wasn't a place where you did commercial activity. Whatever commercial activity was done here was mainly extractive. Until the Chinese showed up, and, and when the Chinese showed up, they, they changed the model. There was a model that existed mm-hmm. between the West and Africa. And that model was basically, um, we extract your resources, we pay you taxes and royalties, and then you can use the royalties and taxes to build infrastructure and services for your people. Now, for most African countries, that money ended up in Swiss bank accounts. And so when the Chinese introduced the Angola model, where in exchange for infrastructure, you use the resources of natural resource, um, use the revenues of natural resource um, exports. And a lot of countries bought into that. And I, I would argue that for the first time in a lot of places, Africans, ordinary Africans were able to see a direct connection between the extraction of their resources and a tangible benefit, whether it was a road, whether it was a power station or a water filtration plant and so i think it's important to understand that when when the chinese presence on the continent met a need a need that was neglected by europe which has had 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 a longer and more substantive presence on the continent mm-hmm. and, and so I, even up to today if you were to suddenly stop chinese uh, lending or chinese uh, money in in african infrastructure there is not a single country that's able to replace China. There's no like-for-like replacement. And so th- there's a substantive presence of China here, but that presence is meeting an obvious need that is not being met in any of the other relationships that we have. But I, I think it's almost like you know having a single, having a monopoly. And what happens then is we become captive to that monopoly that we tend to go along with things that we may not even agree with simply because that's the only option we have. So as good, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of delivering a policy good that China's presence has been, I'm not convinced that it is, you know, an unqualified good. I I don't think the relation, I think the relationship having options other than China benefits us because it allows us to walk away from a deal that we don't believe it benefits us. And so, the absence of a credible alternative to what the Chinese are doing, because Chinese lending exceeds anything from the multilateral institutions, and most developed countries have stepped away from bilateral lending. But on, on, in terms of the provision of infrastructure, Africa lags behind every other region of the world. And Africa is the only continent where population continues to grow. Elsewhere, population has stabilized or is actually declining. So how do we provide the services that are needed for our growing population, very youthful? How do we provide the jobs if we don't have the infrastructure to power our economies? And how do we have that infrastructure if we're not generating the resources? Borrowing seems to be a means of being able to do that. And so I think for the foreseeable future, um, China is going to remain relevant on the continent. And, And I think the more dependent we become on China, the more susceptible we are taking a Chinese position in any conflict it has with the West. So I think, Faith and solution from my perspective, I think we have pieces that can allow us to do an Africa-centric uh, uh, policy or a policy that is shaped by the needs and interests of our continent. And the way to do that is what we've started with the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement.
0: Um, thank you uh, Jude. i'm so glad that you touched on that question of of African agency but before i even t- I even go on to that particular issue let me circle a bit back on on something very interesting you said about how in the in the in how this relationship has played out the partnership has played out we we can't um, escape the um i want to say almost um contentious and, and sometimes controversial issues about perceptions um, and and while like you've said mm-hmm. there's, there's a very um, broad array of rationales, of considerations across both sides of the partnerships. I mean, it's just not only economic interests and strategic considerations, there's also been issues about cultural affinities, there've been questions about people-to-people exchanges that have informed this partnership. And in in talking about the perceptions and and experiences and how um, something like the BRI, which is, like you said, is a hallmark of of infrastructure, uh, development, financing, infrastructure building. So going around that question of perceptions, uh, what do you think um, is the role that African countries need to play or what? what steps do they need to take in um, seeing and, and, and enhancing the value of charting their own course in strategic partnerships? And just, just to, to give you a point as to why I ask this question, if you observe Chinese behaviour, um, Chinese, um, I want to say, policy acumen uh, in, in the evolving partnership, you see that mm-hmm. they've, they've actually been very keen on, uh, taking the, the lessons that need to be taken and, and adjusting accordingly. But my question is, can we say the same for our African um, counterparts? Can we say the same for us as Africans? Are we falling short at, at, at uh, learning the right lessons and being able to, to fit in our own strategic considerations in the partnership?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, you know I, 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 that's, thank you. I, so, if you had asked me that question uh, four years ago, I was going to say absolutely yes because I was in government then. <laughs> but now that I'm, I'm outside of government and just looking at as a policy analyst, I, I I'm not sure we have learned the lessons well. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure we have. So one of the things I would say is that okay, normally a significant amount of Chinese financing that goes into the infrastructure in Africa are loans. You're going to repay those loans. But you will hear of African policymakers and government officials speak of it as investment. There's a clear difference between an investment and a loan. And if you perceive a loan as an investment, then your attitude toward the person providing it is different. So I think in terms of how we negotiate, I'll give you an example that I've used a lot is that we we were presented with a project, an airport project in Liberia with a price already fixed to it. And I, as Minister of Public Works was uh, supposed to sign. and i I didn't. I, I didn't want to sign because my point was the Ministry of Public Works did not have the competence to evaluate whether the price that was the cost attached to this project was uh, um, suitable. So we agreed with the Chinese firm, this China Harbor Engineering Company, that we will select a third party, uh, an engineering firm from the UK, to evaluate the process, and we both agreed that we we would accept Whatever results they came up with, so we we took I think it was the third largest engineering firm in the world at the time from the UK and hired them to review what the Chinese has had given to us, and they came up with what was like forty eight point nine million, so forty eight point nine fifty, you know, is close. I don't know how many African countries go through that process in terms of extracting the best possible deal for their country. And, you know, I want to be careful how I say this, but I would, you know, argue that in some instances, the actors who are negotiating on behalf of African governments do not do so in good faith for themselves, that they are susceptible to inducements by their their, their counterparts on the other side. Um, I'll give you an example again. This wasn't a, a Chinese company. This was a it was a Western company and we were, it was a negotiation over investment in, I think it was iron ore or something. But one of the negotiators on the Liberian side was arguing for more years of the concession than even the party we were negotiating with. So the um, they negotiator, the lead negotiator on the Liberian side sort of called the negotiator called the negotiation off so that he could meet with his team. And he just asked the guy, like, why are you advocating for them even more than they're advocating for themselves? And they later found out that there may have been some inducements. So on the question of whether we're learning the lessons well, whether we're applying the lessons well in terms of our engagement with the Chinese, it remains to be seen. And and there is very little exchange of notes among African actors, you know. So, for example, if you were in uh, Zimbabwe and you were negotiating with the Chinese, it would make sense to have a conversation with your colleagues in Mozambique or in Angola to see what worked or in in Kenya and what didn't work. But uh, in my time in government, maybe it's changed since we left government, but in my time in government, there was very little of that, of African governments and negotiators exchanging notes so that you can be able to get the best possible. So on that question, I don't think it's just the Chinese. It's in our engagement with external actors, period. Whether we're learning the lessons from the past, they in most instances, Faith, uh, I will tell you, that we approach these negotiations weaker because they come with the better lawyers they come with, you know, more data. Sometimes the negotiation is actually occurring on data they provided, And so um, there is a unit at the African Development Bank called the Africa Legal Support Facility. It's available for African governments who are going into negotiations. But um, again, I don't know how, you know, prevalent it is in terms of its use. We used it in Liberia to negotiate with a firm from South Africa that wanted to negotiate a private firm. Uh, um, but... I, I think there's still a long way to go in terms of the quality of our negotiation uh, with other actors, whether they're Chinese or, or Western.
2: That's a very good point uh, to to raise because it it leads very nicely into the next issue that I think is the hot topic for every uh, African government um, as well as external partner with African countries, and that is the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Um, You know, what you've been raising now is not just about uh, agency, it's about how you use your agency to negotiate good deals. Um, As my dad always used to say to me, you only negotiate the deals that you negotiate in bad faith. So you get the deals that you you negotiate. And if you negotiate a good deal, you get a good deal. And I think in the context of, of, of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, it would be Quite apt at this point to raise that question around uh, the kind of not just trade but the kind of investment in trade that you uh, that that African countries can extrapolate with China because of the way in which we need to think about not just how we position Africa's trade dynamic with partners but also the institutional capacity and integration into global value chains and i think one of the key challenges for the african continental free trade agreement is enhancing regional value chains and networks of production mm-hmm. and so forth and how that will increase intra-african trade uh, not just in terms of regional blocks but i think Regional blocks in, uh, engaging with each other in terms of uh, regional trade agreements and so forth, and 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 the way this will actually have an important dynamic for African countries uh, and the continent. More importantly, with all its vested wealth and minerals and resources, both uh, natural resources and human development capacity and resources, to be able to be part of the value chain within the global context. And I think maybe there's this opportunity now for for Africa to think about. That and so just your thoughts on how this can be managed how it can be fashioned in a way where it's not the same kind of trade deal that you want to look at which is a very horizontal but a much more innovative vertical and a, and a, and a more exciting way of thinking about trade within Africa and with external partners and in this case China.
1: I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you raised that point because you know, one of the things that I've said is that uh, on the question of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, we have to temper our expectations. Right? Currently, we have eight regional economic communities. You know, your your SADIC, your ESE, your your ECOWAS in West Africa. And, you know, it's not as if their presence has meant more regional integration. So simply because we're making it larger doesn't necessarily mean that overnight we're going to be regionally integrated because on paper... We are a very integrated continent, all right. But in practice, it isn't. I, I, so I think that's 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 the first thing in terms of you mm-hmm. know it's, it's a very very good start, but we have to be realistic in terms of our expectations. I and mean, that's one. The second thing is, um, you know, we have the lowest in terms of intra-Africa trade, right, of any region in the world. A part of that is because you know if we export, if our, our majority of our exports are unprocessed raw materials, then it's hard for us to trade with each other or among ourselves because, you know, we we don't have the infrastructure that is necessary for us to be able to. So, for example, I was listening to the China Africa podcast and uh, one of my former classmates who happens to work in China now, uh, his name is Walter, he was saying that there is a region in China where all of the chrome that is, you know, mined in South Africa is processed and then shipped back to South Africa as Mm -hmm. finished goods. And the reason why that region of China is able to do that is because the local government subsidizes the electricity cost of processing it. So how do we structure our own trade agreement, uh, a regional uh, trade block, so that we can be able to take advantage of that? And I think one of the ways that we can do this is um, investing more in regional infrastructure, One of the examples that I used in the past was that the distance between Cape Town and and Johannesburg is about equal to the distance between Johannesburg and Lusaka, give or take 200 kilometers. Mm -hmm. But a truck leaving Cape Town to Johannesburg would take about 17 hours. But the same truck leaving Johannesburg to go to Lusaka would take about five days. The reason is not simply because of, you know, the distance. It is about the quality of the the border. So it's not just the hard infrastructure. It's also the soft infrastructure in terms of, you know, regulation, uh, 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 border controls, customs control. If we don't do any of those things, if we, so I think it's important that we focus on hard infrastructure. How can we connect, Mm -hmm. you know, in 2020, there is still no overland trade between West and Southern Africa, right? None simply because there aren't transport links between Western and Southern Africa. And so I think we have to be, think about how do we build regional infrastructure so that it's easy for DRC to process its minerals, even if not in the DRC, it can process the minerals in South Africa mm-hmm. so that the value is still retained on the continent. But South Africa itself would not be in a position to process that because we know the situation with ESCOM. Mm-hmm. So it, I think all of those layers we have to be taken into account. One is what does it look like within the country itself? Most African countries are significantly you know, under-resourced in terms of the infrastructure that it takes to power an economy. But if we take out loans for infrastructure, maybe it makes sense now for us to do it regionally. So- When I was Minister of Public Works, one of the projects we were working on was a road that would connect Dakar to Abidjan and seven countries in West Africa. And all of the seven countries were going to take out a loan to do the project. And that makes sense because it's not simply a road, but it's a road that pushes forward regional integration. So I think regional infrastructure is important. But I think we should also pay attention to what does it look like at the border? Mm-hmm. You know what what are what are the customs regulations? How, how easy it is for people and goods to be able to move across borders? Because if the truck has to stay at the border for 24 to 36 hours, it, it, it carries costs. So it's not just the hard infrastructure but the soft infrastructure. And, and so I, I, I think going forward as we build this, it is important for us to be able to take into account what it will mean. The final thing I would say on this question is we should be looking at what are the benefits to, with trading with each other. One of the things I noticed in my, I have been, I go to South Africa a lot because mm-hmm. of, for, for health reasons. Um, and one of the things that I noticed was most of the things we import from Europe or from Turkey or from Dubai, or wherever, some of that stuff is manufactured in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so just, increasing the amount of trade between African countries, especially the ones that have industrial capacity, and that especially if there's infrastructure to make that happen, we will begin to gain benefits from that before we can begin to look out to the rest of the world. So I think all of this local level, regional level, continental level, all of those three will have to be taken into account. But the final thing I would say, because I've been talking for a bit, is that We have to take into account that this is going to be a slow and deliberate process. It's not going to deliver uh, um, benefits overnight. And I always like to point to the European project. It began as a a relationship between uh, Germany and France, as the European Coal and Steel Commission, and is expanded to become this huge project that we see today of a united Europe that still has issues. So I think, you know, we need to start where we are and built on that. And, and so I, I personally have been slightly disappointed because I think President Ramaphosa in his leadership at the African Union mm-hmm. has not done nearly as much as he could have, even with COVID in mm-hmm. terms of pushing regional integration forward. You saw what happened when President Kigami was chair at the African yeah. Union, he pushed this, he pushed this. And for some reason, President Ramaphosa, I understand everybody's facing COVID, but
0: you know, I, I think he could have done significantly more than he's done on this project. I'm glad you you raised that issue of um, a focus on also the hard infrastructure because that's where the gap um, is is and and it's and th- that's where a lot of the bottlenecks, a lot of the obstacles at a very basic level seem to come in. And also on, on something that Sanusha said that is also important is about the question of of how. Um, we shouldn't take the african free continental free trade as a panacea of some sort to the really big question about africa's structural transformation there's a lot of issues like you say that need to be ironed out rules of origin etc etc that will make will make this process um, a base a slow one but one that in in which we need to be very quick and very adept and very attuned to, 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 to the pragmatism that it demands. But, um, and this is something that came up when we had the conversation on US Africa policy. It's a question of, I feel that at the core of it also is the question of political will, as you've say, rightly said, Judah, because if you look at, at um, a, a very uh, divisive logic of uh, divide and rule, that seems to sort of want to creep up mm. on 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 the on the African uh free continental trade area broader vision. And here I'm referring uh, quite to the the example of Kenya. And Kenya being seen as, as attempting mm-hmm. to break the ranks, you know, and in, in, in negotiating its own uh, bilateral free trade area with with with, with the US. And I mean this is a very it's it's a precedent that is worrisome and of great concern. Just a few thoughts on 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 just this this question about the, the reciprocity question, the question about a growing emphasis that we are seeing on reciprocity when it comes to trade arrangement.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually just did a piece in the Mill and Guardian and I highlight this. That the U.S. government has been, at best, ambivalent about the African project, uh, and, and and you know, at worst, they they you know intent on on creating. They they're trying to do. They they call it a model free trade agreement, so that if they complete it with Kenya, they improvise them a model of how do we engage the continent. Now, obviously, the ad- African continental free trade agreement has room for its members to negate, negotiate bilaterals, and given the proviso. That they would extend the, the best uh, um, portions of that to the rest of the block, but it's really, really, it's undermining the effort of the continent at the, exactly the moment when we're trying to build something together. You're negotiating with one. Now, the, to step back a bit, if I were in Kenya, if I were advising the Kenyan government, I would advise them to do exactly what they're doing. Why? Because we have AGOA, this Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, that allows African goods to go to the U.S. without tariffs. And Kenya is probably the only African country that has disproportionately benefited from access to U.S. markets with AGOA. AGOA is set to expire in 2025. So as far as Kenya is concerned, they want to lock in place the benefits they've gained over the the existence of AGOA. So as long as there is no assurance on the part of the U.S. government or nothing else on the part of the U.S. government that guarantees that Kenyan goods will continue to have this privilege, then it is in Kenya's interest to negotiate something that delivers that to Kenya. So, you know, I understand that generally as a continent, it, it, it diverges and distracts from what we're trying to do. But in, in Kenya, you know, the, the government in Kenya was not elected by Africa. They were elected by Kenyans, and they're responsible to the Kenyan people. So I think on the part of the United States, there are actions that it could take to allay Kenyan fears, right, to allow the continent to move forward in a direction that is moving. And so I think, you know, it, it unless the U.S. changes in terms of how it deals with the continent, then countries like Kenya will be forced to go the path that they're going, and that path distracts from what we're trying to do As uh, as a continent, Um, but again, it's almost as if you know. I in a piece in an interview I did with the Washington Post, I said that um, when the U.S. announced its Africa policy, the U.S. didn't even send anyone at a cabinet level. You, this is supposed to be the policy engaging an entire continent of over a billion people, and you couldn't send a cabinet ranking of and there were eight African presidents present at that meeting. And, and it was not even possible to get a cabinet level rank. You know, one of the ways we can determine the, the importance of a relationship between two countries is the extent of high level exchanges. Right. So mm-hmm. every year, the Chinese government, the first trip that the Chinese foreign minister makes is to Africa. Mm. The, the, the UK... Prime minister on the 30th of May came to Africa I mean this is, is is an indication to the people of both you know nations of both regions and, and you couldn't even send a cabinet level position and for some reason even after the the Africa continental free trade agreement was signed we didn't get official American response for weeks whereas the next day at the foreign policy briefing at the Chinese foreign minister it was ministry it was announced so I think I, I can best describe the U.S. attitude toward the, toward the african Continental free trade agreement as ambivalent, and it is unclear why. Uh, and, but for us, we have to do what is best for us as Africans, understanding that sometimes our own goals will, will be completely misaligned with the goals of our partners and it's important for us to act in ways that benefit us as a people rather than you know, submitting To the goals of our partners, that may not necessarily be what we're looking for.
2: I think uh, that's an incredible point to make about how soft power works in the context of uh, diplomacy. But I think just the optics of how U.S. responds to Africa around the Continental Free Trade Agreement, around the fact that um, you signed this a kind of new or a a revision uh, China, I mean a, a revision U.S. Africa engagement, but you don't really think of it as a high-level approach, whereas China does this in a very systematic way, and all of those optics work well. And given what you just said, Gude, do you think that in the context of how the US is responding to Africa as this kind of, we'll take you along as we go along approach, that this would really change the trade or or, or enhance Africa's trade dynamic with China? in the context of, you know, we know that the ACFTA is uh, very, very new. It's going through some serious internal challenges as well. But just in the context of how this will play out in in, in the way the optics are are unfolding with regard to the relationship that African countries have or, or, or leaders have with China. Uh, is this another kind of foot in the, I mean, a, a consolidation of China's trade p- uh, f- footprint with Africa? But again, the question is, what are we exporting to Af- uh, to mm-hmm. China and what are we importing from China? And how much does that change the the asymmetrical relationship of trade between the two sides?
1: Yeah, I, I, it, you know, it, on the face of it, it appears that that's what would happen, right? That, you know, if... if that china's power and china's influence on the continent would only increase but part of what i advised in my piece was we need to actively avoid that we're not trying to get into anyone's sphere of influence or have any one country exercise undue you know overly undue influence on the continent so in uh, most the most recent piece that I did, because, you know, the EU Africa summit should have been at the end of October. And one of the things that I said was Africa has not really benefited from proximity to European prosperity. And Europe is our neighbor. We're close to Europe. Right. And and what the Chinese have done, whether it's through the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of building infrastructure to link the economies, that hasn't been Europe's I mean, Europe has been obsessed with migration. I mean, what they, migrations has largely taken over European policy toward Africa is that, oh, let's invest in Africa so the people stay there. You know, let's create jobs in Africa so they stay there. Let's advance the European border to as far as, you know, the Sahel so that we can keep Africans from coming over here. So I think if if there is a new and substantive you know, more equitable relationship and partnership between Europe and Africa, then China doesn't necessarily have to gain from, um, you know, if our relationship with the U.S. doesn't go forward. Like I was saying before, you know, we, Africa wants to be in a position where it can walk away from a relationship or it can advance a relationship that is against what its partner Mm -hmm. wants if it is not in Africa's interest. Right now, I don't know if we can do Mm -hmm. that with China. I, I don't know. I think there's a, a significant amount of fear on the parts of African governments in their relationship with China on what would happen if China ever became, you know, uh, if there was ever a rift in the relationship between us and China. But on the part of the US, also, I, you know, to your question in terms of what do we export for now, you know, largely unprocessed agricultural or mineral products, right? And, and most of that is shipped to China where it is processed into finished goods and then it mm-hmm. comes back on the continent. So at some point you know, industrial policy has to become really important and industrial policy doesn't happen without some sort of you know buildup mm-hmm. of capital mm-hmm. goods uh, of infrastructure uh, you know uh, and being able to do that so it's I don't know I, I, I think you know going forward, it is important for Africa's leaders to be as open as possible to partnerships with the three blocks, But I think it's time also for us to begin to look elsewhere. You know, what would it look like with closer trade mm-hmm. relations with India or with Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam, right? Or with uh, Latin America, with Brazil and, and, and Colombia, I think we have to look beyond traditional partnerships because we don't want to be caught in a relationship where we have no out because we've become so almost dangerously dependent on a single partner. And so I think I agree with you that, you know, it's going to be, it's going to take steps in terms of the free trade agreement and the free trade area on the continent, but also an expansion of what we consider our partners, uh, we have to look beyond the, the, the... Because if you look what's happening in the South China Sea, you look what's happening in terms mm-hmm. of the buildup militarily, um, there is a possibility someone will make a mistake. Yeah. Right? I mean, wars rarely... You know, wars sometimes begin because um, one party makes a mistake or takes an action that it believes is not a very serious action, and then the response simply escalates. And so with what we're seeing, you know, as much as we don't want this to happen, but there is a possibility of, of, of something happening between China and the United States, or between China over Taiwan, with mm-hmm. what's happening in Hong Kong, China may turn its attention to Taiwan, and, and you know, the U.S. might be drawn into the region. So for us in Africa, all of that stuff is going to disproportionately affect us. It is important for us to be able to diversify. Our, our partnership. I mean, I
2: think that's a fantastic point to to lead into the next issue that I really think we we need to give some attention to, and that's the uh, North African region. Uh, I know we call it the Middle East and North African region, and mm-hmm. but I, I think for me, for the purposes of this discussion, is around the North African region, particularly, and looking at the North at, at that at that region in the context of China, because. I was at a, I was participating in a in a webinar recently um, hosted by Chatham House, and it was very interesting to hear the, the the experts say that as it stands, China does not necessarily have the same interest in North Africa in the way that people perceive it to have. In other words, what the participants were all uh, uh, alluding to was that. China's immediate concern is in its regional periphery in, 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 in its own region it's Tibet it's Hong Kong it's the South China Seas it's um, it's not about um, the fact that they are will they, they they see the North African region in the way that um, it's becoming a, 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 a an overriding strategic consideration yet that was the, the the interesting part the yet part and I was just wondering from where you sit uh, and, 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 and all of the analysis and the and the, in, and, and, the in, and the information that you are assimilating and assessing is is how do you see that uh, that that kind of perception or that kind of interpretation or narrative that it's difficult for China to come into the North African region uh, with and claim soft power are, and and, and, the, and the maghrib region is still very much about uh, Europe and southern Europe and that relationship uh, across the Mediterranean. Um, and so there may be other de- other dynamics at play there that China doesn't really want to get too involved in that region. But it also raises these questions that we have. is When we talk about Africa, we tend to assume that it's one big collective with all the same interests and the same dynamics. And we don't understand that there's many Africas in one. So just a little bit around uh, that impression, that or, or maybe uh, an, a different impression you're getting about China in the, Middle East, in, the, in the North Africa and then more broadly the Middle East region.
1: My my understanding uh, around especially Chinese investment in in, in military uh, in its military capacity in, in the Pacific has been um, sort of uh, to deny that if anything were to happen in that region to deny the U.S. access, right? And so it was like this first chain of islands to to prevent the U.S. from from going beyond that. Now I saw that yesterday they're building their third aircraft carrier. And and uh, and this time is actually to extend that to a second chain of islands. Uh, we're mm-hmm. talking Guam and Hawaii. So it, it looks like the Ch- China is building its its, its uh, navy, building this military capacity to be able to deny. Um, I don't think the intent is to become a global power, but to become a regional power that dominates this region. Um, on the question of, I, I think the way part of the reason why. Uh, European and American um, military planners uh, and, and, and defense analysts looking at China have, have been worried. is the kind of investments that the Chinese make. The kind of investments yeah. that the Chinese make are dual uh, dual use technology, dual use infrastructure, right So um, there was I, I read a paper uh, about Chinese investment in European ports. And the possibility that in the future, you know, Chinese military ships could come into port in those areas. And in the future, if there was a future conflict, that those ports themselves would become access to the Chinese military. Which comes back to this issue about, uh, so China's first overseas base, the one in Djibouti, was built because China was a part of a global Mm -hmm. effort to curb um, uh, piracy. In in the in the Gulf of Aden, and that has now expanded into a huge military base to support Chinese peacekeeping operations in Africa, but also to protect Chinese interests, economic interests on the continent. And that's not different from Italy, from Japan, from the UK, from America, all of the external actors, Turkey, UAE, that have military bases on the continent. So I think the first the goal is not to become a, a, a a global power, but a very powerful regional one. And the second one also is also to be able to have these investments that are dual use. They're both civilian and for military use. And and to be able to have a presence around the world, whether it's in the Mediterranean, whether it's in Africa, uh, or or other parts of Asia and Latin America, that makes, you know, if the U.S. were to ever think of engaging the Chinese military, they would think twice. Right. And that might be able to delay that. That might be able to curb that. So I don't know if if China's intent in, in North Africa are any different from its intent on the rest of the continent. I think it's largely, number one, driven by economics. But that economics also takes into account China's growing ambition as a power and what that would mean in case of an armed conflict. I mean, if you have been following what's been happening in Europe, it used to be that if, uh, if mm-hmm. an external a foreign investor wanted to invest in a company that was deemed strategic, if the investment was 25% or above, then the government, say in Germany, would have to approve it. Well, Germany changed that law to reduce it from 25% to 10%, mainly because of Chinese. Uh, um, investment in those firms. And now, mm-hmm. you know, they are beginning to declare a lot more of those industries as national security related. So to prevent Chinese takeover of those. And so I think now that China is being perceived not simply as a rising power, but as a rising power with a completely different set of objectives, I think there's going to be pushback, not simply, you know, in uh, Europe and in the Mediterranean, but also in North Africa, which Europe sees as its area of influence. And
0: I, I agree with you about um, a, a very broad range of, of like, uh, an, a very evolving calculus when it comes to the North African engagement. And I think one one particular perspective that that also fascinates me, which I find very pertinent to what you're saying, is the whole question of. Um, diversification mm-hmm. of energy energy needs and its energy mix and looking at at the Middle East um, and, and, and the kind of um, comparative advantages it has in terms of, of just the crude oil it, it, it's then shifted in that regard and it will be interesting to see in future how um, that pivot, if you want to call it that, to, to the Middle East, to North Africa based on that calculus of energy needs, how that will actually also influence uh chinese uh policy towards africa i think keep that's watching. something that mm-hmm. is something we need to 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 keep our uh, watching a brief on mm-hmm. yeah but but um i just want to turn away from from that and bring the conversation now into the, the mm-hmm. very broad perspective of trajectory and we we are all, we are all aware of how the coronavirus pandemic has um awakened and, and exposed some fault lines, how it's, it's also um, showing us that there's, there's a lot of um, long-term implications and ramifications that um, all of us globally will have to deal with some, obviously, a bit more than others. But in view of this developments around the pandemic, the battered global economy, the, the resurfacing of, of economic nationalism, um, the hard, hardline stance we've seen around the geopolitical competition, um, from a very broad, almost looking glass um, trajectory perspective, how do you see uh, the the China-Africa relations um, evolving going forward? What what are some of the patterns, maybe of continuity and and change that you see uh, going forward? So, something about so, the trajectory. So I, you um, know, as again,
1: we're looking glass. We're looking to the future, <laughs> and yeah, and sometimes our projections. Um, May not come true. One is that Africa is going to continue to be important to China, not mainly because of its economic, not for economic reasons, but mainly for political reasons. As China becomes more and more isolated for legitimacy of its actions globally, Africa has 54 countries in the block. And so China is going to continue to look to that. We've already seen that, as I said, with the China's actions in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang and how they look to Africa for a number of countries to support that. And so in international negotiations, international fora, uh, China is gonna to continue to want you know most of Africa to support it. And so Africa will remain important to China going forward. But I, I think for us in Africa, we have to be very careful because if you look at Europe, almost every country in Europe has set, at least in Western Europe, has said about 2030 or 2040 they're going to completely switch over to electric vehicles. Europe is inching toward a post-carbon economy. Europe is you know, trying to reduce its carbon footprint. A significant number of African countries depend almost overwhelmingly on petroleum exports. So there is a possibility in the future that we're going to be left with stranded assets, huge deposits of oil that the world is no longer using. BP just came out with a projection yesterday that in the 20s, people thought it would be like in the 2030s, but in the 2020s, that some of the, the uh, reduction in the use of oil that we've seen will be permanent and that we're approaching peak demand for oil. So for African countries for whom, you know, there was a year where 70% of everything we shipped to China was oil you know, and, and, and other minerals. This is going to be really, really important that the, the importance of Africa as an economic partner may not, we continue to decline, especially to China, and that Africa's importance to China might be largely political. The way we avoid that, the way we, we, we position ourselves against that is to build ourselves into a market that everybody wants to export to. So it's not Togo offering itself as a market or Chad offering itself as a market or Guinea-Bissau, or Liberia, or Gambia, or Burundi. It is the entire Africa. If you're going to ship into Africa, you're shipping into a single market. And so for us, it is in our best interest, all of the relationships that we have to pull our assets together so that we are a single unit and operating at least economically as a single unit. Because going forward, you know, as Tony Blair said in one of his interviews, these continent-sized countries, like the United States, like China, like Brazil, like Indonesia, those are the countries that are going to dominate international affairs. And because our countries tend to be so small, you know, in terms of both power and and and, and economics, it is important that as we face the future, we face the future as a unit, because that's the way we're going to be able to thrive in that future. That's uh.
2: That's an incredible way to to think about it. And and I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate and ask you, uh, as a former minister in the Liberian government, going forward to FOCAC next year, how would you advise your government in terms of the kind of agency or the kind of policy or the kind of... Uh, positioning they should take towards um, the FOCAC and what they could extract from it in terms of just what you, uh, you said around the positioning of Africa, the market, the industrialization, the, the political world, but also the deals or, or, or the kind of engagement you want to uh, develop that's based on more of, an, of, of a relationship of equals than having this kind of asymmetrical engagement.
1: You know, in in beginning in 2018, I began to take this position that it's, you know, don't go to FOCAC as 54 small units. You know, you may not be able to go as a single unit, but I I would encourage Liberia, for example, if I was in Liberia, I would encourage the the president now to talk to her counterpart in Sierra Leone and talk to her counterpart in Guinea. So that if we negotiate anything with China, it's regional. It's at least sub-regional. It's among the three countries. Right. First, it means that they're not negotiating with a single small country. You're negotiating with three countries, and we all have the same position. I think it's important that now in negotiations with China, especially for loans, for, for infrastructure, that we begin to focus on regional infrastructure. That's one. I also told you that in my time in government, there was very little in terms of you know, consultation and note sharing among African governments. It makes no sense to show up at the event as 54 units, each of you attempting to negotiate your own thing, completely uh, um, disregarding whatever negotiations have happened in the past or are currently happening. I think it's important for us to continue when you go to this, before going to these meetings, that there is a meeting of minds among the Africans. Okay, this is what we're going to negotiate. And in the process to continue to consult with each other so that you get the best outcome. Because as long as you're in in those negotiations as individual units, it's almost I can't see how you get the optimal outcomes for yourself and for your people, especially given the future we've said. So I think the advice that I would give would be those two. One, we'll come in as a unit, at least two countries together, three countries together, and even during the negotiation, we'll continue to consult with other countries in terms of how is it going, what are, what have you found to be successful to be able to do that, I think. But I, I wouldn't leave it with only FOCAC. I would also have it apply to Africa's engagement with any external actor who's on the country.
0: Yeah, I think I think we've had a very um interesting we've, we've tried to bring in a lot of um important points in in just trying to make sense of what is certainly a fascinating partnership an evolving one. And I don't want to to rehash a lot of what you've we've already discussed, but what came out for me very strongly is um, and again, like, like we were discussing in our first episode, it's, a, it's the idea of African agency and the need for, for Africa to also embrace this question of a choice of partners. And, and um, also the idea of Africa that it shouldn't find itself in a, in a bind. It shouldn't be, feel um, indebted either by blind loyalties or by falsified narratives. And that our leaders need to reimagine and rethink just how we also shape our strategic partnerships. And and um, I also just want want to also um, just remind our listeners of something important that you raised, Judy, which is the idea that I think one pattern of continuity is that Africa will continue to be an important um, ally, an important partner to, to, to China for political, for economic reasons, for strategic reasons. And I think having said that, I just want to say thank you very much, um, Jude, for, for your insights. Um, I've, I've certainly enjoyed this conversation and, and we look forward to the feedback and the comments that we'd also receive from, from listeners. Before, before I let you go, uh, I just want to also give you an opportunity. I know that you also, in addition to your writing and your research, that you also run a podcast. So maybe that's something that you want to point our um, listeners to.
1: Sure. So again, again, just thank you. Thank you. It's been a privilege and a really, really uh, enjoyable conversation with you and, and Sanusha. Yeah, my, my colleague uh, Aubrey Ruby and I have a podcast. It's called New um, Think. And what we try to do is just explore ideas that, you know, may not be the ideas that everybody else is talking about, but we believe has transformative impact. And so it's called New Think. Look it up. And uh, follow me on Twitter is g y u d e underscore more m o o r e. And uh, again, thanks for having me, in and I, I look forward to continued partnership just between us and between our institutions. Thank you.
2: Uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for your insights and getting us to to talk about things that would definitely get us you get us back into another conversation to explore further. But it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so
0: much thank you thank you to everyone thank you for for tuning in and we look forward to continuing strategic dialogues in the next episode